everyone, this is Amanda Porcel Dan, and welcome to Times Will Tell, a weekly podcast from the Times of Israel. Happy Independence Day. Yom Hatzmaut Sameach. Today, I'm speaking with author and educator Ben Freeman, whose new book, Jewish Pride, Rebuilding a People, explores how progressive society has turned Zionism into a form of racism. And he explains how Jews can reclaim Israel and their Jewish pride for themselves. Ben is an educator based in Hong Kong, and the book is an informative dive into the history of anti-Semitism and how Jews and many eras, including our own, have internalized this anti-Semitism, the systemic anti-Semitism, to the detriment of the Jewish people as a whole. He discusses his own experiences in being a proud Jew and a proud gay man and how the two worlds accept or reject each of these identities. Finally, he gives encouragement for the rooting of a Jewish pride movement and spotlight seven young activists who have taken up the gauntlet. Enjoy. Hi, Ben. Thank you for joining me. Where am I finding you today? Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm in Hong Kong. You're in Hong Kong. Wow, that blows me away. Though you did mention in your book, Jewish Pride, Rebuilding a People, that you do live in Hong Kong. I just assumed that that was a passing fancy. What are you doing there? So I came out here in 2015 and I was the director of education for the Hong Kong Holocaust Centre. And then I had a brief visit back to Scotland and I've been here for about four years since that period. And I'm the head of humanities at an American international school. And I lecture on anti-Jewish racism kind of in Hong Kong and online around the world. Well, after having just read your book, again, it's called Jewish Pride, Rebuilding a People. I can definitely say you're an educator first and foremost. It comes through every single page in the book. Now, first of all, can you just briefly describe to our listeners, what is this book? What was the goal of the book? Absolutely. So the goal of the book, that's actually an easier question, I guess, to answer than what is the book, because the book is many things. But the goal of the book, or the goals of the book are threefold. The first is to empower, inspire and, and educate Jews so that they're able to reject the shame of anti-Jewish racism. I think that's something we as a community don't speak about enough. We, you know, we've just had Yom HaShoah and we make a huge amount of effort, quite rightly, to commemorate our dead but we don't discuss the psychological impact that all of the prejudice we've experienced has on us. Secondly, it's to, again, inspire, empower and educate Jews so that they're able to reject non-Jewish definitions of what it means to be a Jew. So a perfect example of this is in the UK a few weeks ago, there was a debate on the BBC and the ruling question at the bottom of the screen was, should Jews be counted as an ethnic minority? Now, there were six people involved in this conversation. One was Jewish and five of the, and the other five were not Jewish. And then basically you had five non-Jewish people debating Jewish identity, which is totally absurd and deeply, deeply inappropriate. And the last goal is to, again, inspire, educate, empower Jews so that they're able to begin the journey, because it is a journey, but begin the journey of identifying as proud Jews, but most importantly, through an authentic understanding of Jewish experience, Jewish tradition and Jewish history. The book is many things. And that was one of my worries when I was writing it, because it's not a history book. It's not a psychology book. It's not a memoir it's really many, many things. It's really a thematic book about Jewish identity, first and foremost. So we cover history, we cover theory, we cover psychology. I absolutely talk about my own experience. And this is the, 
The thing that I think is really important when one is proposing theories or kind of talking about more academic concepts, we can never forget that we're talking about real people, real people's lived experiences. So I kind of reinforce that idea by talking about my own experience. But it is many things: part self-help, part memoir,、uh, theory, psychology, history, many, many things. It's so perfect for the soundbite、uh, ADD world that we live in because you're jumping back and forth in a very organized manner. I have to say, <laughs> between two thousand years ago or or even earlier, and then we have today, and then we have you know all the whole entire Jewish diaspora being discussed, and of course your own personal experience, and then interviews with. Uh, seven other people or eight other people, if we count a, a woman who wasn't featured specifically. In any case, it, it is a little bit about everything, and I had come into it actually expecting that it would be more of a nexus between the LGBT community. And the Jewish community and the pro-Israel Jewish community. Actually, that's what was my、um, impetus in reading it. But what I came out with was so much more than that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that some people think because it's called Jewish Pride, it's really about gay Jewish people specifically. But what it does is use my experience as a gay man, as someone who has been on a journey to Pride already, to kind of see, okay, how could this idea work in our community? Because I do think we need it. Pride has been incredibly powerful. For the LGBTQ plus community and also for other communities, but it really has enabled me as a gay man not just to be comfortable with who I am, but to be proud of it and to be proud of the community that I'm a part of and to be proud of the kind of traditions that I that I came into to being. And I think with the Jewish world, I guess with you know jumping back to that answer I gave about we don't talk about the shame enough. You know we have intergenerational trauma. Epigenetic trauma is a is a possibility.、Um, we all experience so many different things, and it's so multifaceted because it's based on our own experiences of anti Jewish racism, the current collective experience that we as a people are going through, and then also the historic experience. And we have a responsibility to ourselves and to our future to discuss these, to process it, to heal as much as possible. So Jewish pride is really. That healing journey, but it absolutely is born from my LGBTQ plus、um, pride journey that I already had taken. So, when you were writing the book, it's、uh, built on suspense, actually, because you do mention your own、uh, your own、uh, journey and and the idea that we need a Jewish pride movement, right? And so then you say, but just before we get to talk about that, I'm going to feed you some vegetables. I'm going to teach you about history, and and cream these vegetables up in such a way that you feel like you're eating junk food, but it, it tastes really good, and and you're going to learn a lot, and you won't even realize you're learning a lot, but you are. Are actually, and I'll teach you all about the history of anti-Semitism, and I'll teach you all about、uh, Jewish assimilation and internalization. And, and it's just so fascinating how you set the book up in this way. Yeah, and it's funny because I'm I'm just at the beginning, or rather, I'm a month in、um, in the middle of teaching our class on the Holocaust, and the first three four chapters. Are the beginning of that class because, as you said, I'm really, I'm really、uh, grateful that you said I, I, an educator, or my role as an educator shines through because that's what I wanted to do. I really thought, okay, how do I get people to understand? And I don't think it's possible to talk about modern Jewish identity or modern Jewish expressions of, of or modern expressions of anti-Jewish racism without talking about history. And I think that actually that is a blind spot that many people have. 
Many people talk specifically about right wing. In the UK, there was obviously many conversations about left wing because of Jeremy Corbyn. And those are important. It is important to understand the specificity. However, if we don't understand the roots, those conversations are incomplete. So in my class, you know, someone said to me today on Twitter, where do you start teaching your Holocaust class? And I was like, well, we released star in the ancient Greek, ancient Roman, ancient Egyptian world. And, pe and the people are kind of blown away. But this, it's, an, it's imperative that the students understand that what happened in Germany was not just a German problem. It had been an issue in the non-Jewish world for thousands of years. And that obviously impacts the world that we live in. You know, we are living in a world deeply influenced by what came before us. So to understand modern Jewish identity, we have to understand how it came to be in the past. And I really liked how you emphasized that it's not obviously just a German problem. It's also not just a Christian problem because obviously you begin before Christianity even was founded. And that, I think, is an important lesson for Jews to take with them. Absolutely. And the notion that it is just a Christian problem, it, it was just inaccurate because you're right, it, ancient Egyptian, ancient Greek, ancient Roman, but also in the Muslim world. You know, the experience of Mizrahi Sephardic Jews, um, Martin Gilbert says this, and I quote him in the book, it wasn't really a golden age. And I think what that shows us that we think we have these golden ages in inverted commas is that we have such a low bar for how we expect to be treated because Jews in the Muslim world experienced legal persecution. They had the Jizi attacks, they were Zimis, and ultimately they were expelled you know, from the Arab countries and Iran. So it's vitally important we talk about that experience as well. And, you know, the other day on Yom HaShoah, um, I did a post about the fact that, again, it wasn't just a German problem. And you have other countries in Europe, but then also you have countries like Tunisia, Iraq. The Farhud was carried out by Iraqi Muslims. And yes, it was Nazi-inspired, but this is a non-Jewish problem. And that doesn't mean that it's individual non-Jewish people. What it means is this is something that exists in kind of non-Jewish culture, ideology, society, and it's something much bigger than us. But again, if, you're, if you don't go back to the beginning, you can't understand it. And if you don't understand it from all its sources, you fail to identify it. I have to admit that one of the things that drew me to the book as well is your discussion of race in terms of, are Jews white? And this is something, I'm dating myself here, I'm 45, but when I left the United States uh, 20 odd years ago, it wasn't really talked about then. And me hearing it from afar here in Israel, I just was kind of like, oh, poo-poo, what a weird thing for Jews to be discussing right now. Those you know entitled Jews in North America, don't they have anything better to do? But no, you really contextualized it in a very uh, thought-provoking and thoughtful way. Can you talk a little bit about this particular debate? Yes, and thank you so much for saying that, because that was something that it's, it's a controversial topic. We, so firstly, that conversation is much more complex than it first appears. It's not really about the colour of our skin. I'm sitting in front of you with a bright light, uh, bright beauty light, so I'm looking very white. But this isn't about the colour of our skin, actually. It's about what power represents. And um, this is something that I think, again, going back to the beginning, the origins of anti-Jewish racism is really important. Jews have always been perceived, portrayed as being powerful obsessed with money and powerful. And at different times in history, that has manifested in different ways. So in 1903, it was the protocols. You know, in Poland, it was uh, Komuna, it was Jewish communism. And now, on the left specifically, it's the idea that Jews are white. Okay, so where does, where does that come in? Well, on the left, the 
perceived source of power, oppression, is whiteness. So therefore, because Jews are also framed as powerful, just that's just how we're framed through anti-Jewish racism, that is how we're perceived. So it's really important to understand the root. It isn't really about the colour of our skin. And it can be complicated because I do pass as white. So when I go into a store, people will think that I'm white if I'm not wearing my kippah. But I think that we, because of the United States, because of actually North America as a whole, we're so obsessed with just one form of privilege, and that's white privilege. But actually, firstly, I think that we should do away with the word privilege. I think that it's much more nuanced to talk about advantage and disadvantage, because privilege is used to denote an immovable status, which is just not the way it is. But if I'm walking down the street with my same-sex partner, and I'm wearing a kippah, we could be attacked for being a same-sex couple, or because I'm a Jew. However, an Asian person right now walking down the street in America with their differently sexed partner could be attacked for being an Asian person, but not necessarily because of their sexual orientation or another ethno-religious marker. And obviously, my partner and I, my partner is white, we would not be attacked because of the colour of our skin. So we see in that moment, we both have disadvantage and we both have advantage. So I'm a gay Jew, but I'm also a man. And I think that what we have to do is try and progress the conversation. We should always try and progress the conversation so that we are advancing it and moving it forward to deepen our understanding as opposed to deciding, okay, we've settled on this binary and this is where we're going to stay. Because I think it does damage Jews, specifically because we are a square peg into a round hole. We do not fit notions of prejudice. We do not fit modern notions of an oppressed group. So it means that we're erased. And actually that is a form of anti-Jewish racism that I named last year, a race of anti-Jewish racism, because our experience and our identity is so often erased. And it's really damaging. And you know, I say to my students, you know, we get it from the right, we get it from the left, and it's like stuck in the middle with Jew. But I sing it to that song, stuck in the middle with you. That's really our situation. But not understanding what does it mean to say the Jews are white monolithically is very dangerous. A, because of the perceptions of power, and B, because it also erases non-white passing Jews. So it's a much more complex conversation, but it's a conversation for us to have. The non-Jewish world should be listening. They shouldn't be telling us. And that's what we're seeing here. We're being dictated to. One thing I keep wondering about in this whole debate about whether Jews are white, because as as you, I'm I'm very, very pale. I burn in, in fluorescent lighting. I'm that pale. Um, but I wonder if it's just another form of another term that came up since I've left North America, othering, that we are othering ourselves in a way by saying, no, I'm not white. Can you be white and Jewish and all sorts of different things as you're talking about with the blended identities? Yeah, I think it's a really great question. And I think that if we're talking about the color of our skin, yes, of course we can. And yes, this conversation is happening really because of the non-Jewish world, because they're having this conversation about whiteness and it has bled into our community. Um, and I do think there's issues actually with even not identifying as white. So there is a, definitely a conversation to be had about that. I guess the reality is, though, it's not really about the colour of our skin. So yes, we could say, I could say, okay, I'm a white Jew. But in a modern context, that fully misunderstands my experience. Because while I may have light skin, the colour of my skin has never, ever saved me from anti-Jewish racism, nor has it ever saved Jews. And I think that's really the point. If a Jewish person says, I'm a white Jew, 
that's kind of none of my business. It's not necessarily something I would say, but it really isn't any of my business. But I think there is something which is fundamentally important, and that is recognizing that the color of our skin has never saved us from anti-Jewish racism. It is not um, a privilege to be a white Jew because we still get it from the Jew from anti-Semitism. Right. It's not the actual color that we're talking about here. We're talking about what it represents. And and honestly, nobody is white, you know, aside from the vampires that walk among us, right? But <laughs> <laughs> honestly, if you look at me, I'm very pink. <laughs> but absolutely, you're so right. But and that is always and this is what this is this book is partly about, is about reclaiming our narrative. Because our identity has been shaped by the non-Jewish world for thousands of years. And we have been assigned roles. And this is really damaging because it, none of this is about us as individuals. So it's not about the colour of your skin or my skin. Exactly as you say, it's about what our skin represents, but more what we as Jews represent. And, you know, I use this example with my students to help them understand. In Harry Potter, book three, we meet a magical creature called a Bogart who hides in a cupboard and no one knows what it looks like. And the Bogart looks different to each person. So it really takes the shape of whatever the person fears most looking at it. So for you, it might be snakes. For me, it might be spiders. Totally different. And that is kind of the service that, or rather the purpose that we serve to the non-Jewish world. We're capitalist, we're communist, we're white to the left. We're also, most importantly, we have to understand not white to the right. So we represent all things to all people which A, demonstrates just how unbelievably contradictory and irrational all of this is, but B, also how deeply embedded it is. I, I would say it even goes beyond being embedded. It's foundational. It's a foundational part of the Christian world, the Muslim world, the ancient world in many ways. And it's not about us as individuals, but it certainly impacts our lives. So when someone says we are white Jews, it is assigning us an identity, whether or not we... we feel that, which is a problem. Hi, it's Sarah Tuttle Singer from the Times of Israel. Come join our community and support fast and fair independent journalism. You can sign up with the link at the bottom of every single article on the site. Now, in the people that you interviewed, you really... Uh, portrayed a rainbow <laughs> society of Jewish people, very young and very attractive, all of them, I have to say. But it was just uh, fascinating to read their profiles. And what else I really enjoyed about each of the people that you uh, probed into is that not all of them are rah, 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 go Israel. There are people in, inside this group who are very frank about the problems in Israeli society and Jewish society as a whole. And that was so refreshing for me to read in a, in a book that is staunchly pro-Zionist, but very realistic about modern Israel. Absolutely. And I think that is fundamentally important. We have to live in the world that we live in. Living in a fantasy, whether you frame Israel as the land of milk and honey, or you say it's the worst place in the world, it doesn't really help us because neither are true. So it was really important to interview Jews from across the Jewish world, just because we're not a monolith. You know, and I think it's really important to educate people. This was an opportunity for maybe Jews of a certain age living in Glasgow, where I'm from, to learn about the Bet Israel Jews or even a trans Jew and say, you can have these hyphenated identities. You can be a gay Jew, a, a black Jew, a trans Jew, an Asian Jew, and still be a proud Jew and still be a fundamentally important part of our community. 
And I think it is important to say that I believe very fundamentally it is not possible to be anti-Zionist and to be proudly Jewish. I think that they are not the same. It's just not possible. It's because I see anti-Zionism as a form of anti-Semitism, form of anti-Jewish racism. But we do have to recognize the realities. And Israel is not a perfect place. And we can say, and I do, that Zionism is the most successful decolonization project in history. Hebrew, the modern Hebrew language is a miracle. Tel Aviv is a miracle. All of these amazing places. And still, Israel is a real country, a real sovereign state that has problems. It has problems with Bibi. It has problems with how LGBTQ plus people are treated. It has problems. Why? Because every country has problems. And there is a tendency to assign those problems or responsibility for those problems to Israel's Jewishness. That's where a real problem lies. No, Israel has problems because people are a bit rubbish, whether they're Jewish or not. And countries, statehood is hard. You know, statehood and being a country is not easy. And Israel is locked in a long running conflict in a very hostile region. So, of course, there are problems. But does that mean we can't love Israel? No, of course. I love Israel. And I'm staunchly Zionist. I love Israel. But I'm not going to pretend that Israel's perfect when it's not. Because who does that serve? Certainly not us. And I think very few Israelis pretend that. <laughs> At least not after the first year of living in the country. <laughs> Absolutely. Sure. I, I do wonder, though, um, you yourself come from the progressive end of uh, political thinking and, and societal thinking. And it does seem like this edge, both in the UK, where you're from, and in North America, where I'm from, is very, very vehemently anti-Israel to the point of being anti-Zionist at this point point. So I wonder, what do we do about all of these Jews who are perhaps even proudly Jewish, but not Zionist in any way anymore? Well, I think it's really important that we reclaim the term Zionism. And actually, the book came about because I wrote an article a couple of years ago about reclaiming Zionism. Because Zionism is, was a movement of self-determination to return the Jews to their indigenous homeland. That's it, full stop. And yes, there are different interpretations, even in the Jewish world, of course. But it was a concept, modern political Zionism was a concept created by Jews for Jews. And the ideas behind Zionism have been present in our peoplehood for thousands of years, even before we were expelled, but especially when we were expelled from our land. And it's one of the things that kept these sub-ethnic Jewish communities connected to one another, was our connection to the land. So that's Zionism. So it's illegitimate for non-Jewish people to try and define Zionism, particularly when they define Zionism as racism, white supremacy, imperialism, colonialism. So I think what we have to do is very loudly and proudly reclaim Zionism and say, I am a progressive and I'm a Zionist. I support LGBTQ plus rights. I support black rights. I support the Asian community. I support women. And I'm a Zionist. Not but, and. Because actually... Zionism is kind of a progressive ideal. And obviously, non-progressive Jews will also, could all, will also identify as Zionists. But it kind of is. If you look at the progressive world, they're all about indigenous rights. They're all about, you know, reclaiming homelands. So the reason they don't is because obviously anti-Jewish racism. But I do think that being a loud, proud, progressive Zionist or just being a loud and proud Zionist, refusing to accept non-Jewish -defin non definitions of not just our identity, but of our concepts. I, get, I have people writing to me say thank you for being so loud and proud and open and it's helping me rethink myself, rethink the way I've thought about Israel because it's most importantly not about being judgmental. 
Yes, we can name something like internalized anti-Jewish racism. And we can say this exists because it exists in every community. But we don't judge you for it. We understand that being a Jew in the non-Jewish world is hard. And this is something that has been part of our community for thousands of years. So what we can do is open our doors, open our arms, say, come, come back into the fold. We're not going to judge you. But we're also not going to compromise on certain things, like the idea that it's impossible to be a proud Jew and to be anti-Zionist. And this is why I say at the beginning, one of the main objectives of the book is to get people to go on that journey to define themselves as pro-Jews, but through an authentic understanding of Jewish history, values and tradition. Because to have an authentic understanding of our history, values and traditions, I don't believe it's possible to be anti-Zionist. So those who identify today as pro-Jews but are anti-Zionist, I would argue they don't understand authentically, fully, our history, values, or tradition. I think they understand a warped version of. Um, and I think that we have to fight back against that. But we don't necessarily fight by, you know, demonizing people, make people feel guilty. If one uses their identity to harm the rest of the Jewish community, like certain organizations in America or in Britain, yes, I think we should go for them hard. But the individuals, we should be, listen, we understand this is hard. But let us teach you, let us explain to you, let us give you the tools to look inside yourself, which I guess is where my kind of being a teacher comes into it. Another area in which your proud Zionist identity has rubbed against another identity, your gay identity, is in, in this situation. You uh, discuss in the book, I believe it was the Dyke March, in mm. which you you were denigrated in a certain way. You weren't allowed to bring the symbols that you wanted to bring. Talk about this incident, please. So I, that, I actually wasn't there. That was, it was reported in the Jewish press, but this was happening a lot and happened on multiple occasions and has happened before to me in a less kind of organized way. People say you're not allowed to display your Jewishness alongside your LGBTQ-ness. So how would you display your Jewishness and your LGBTQ-ness together? So for example, most days I wear a kippah, even though I'm not particularly observant, it's how I kind of demonstrate my proud Jewishness. And I have a black kippah with a rainbow star of David on it. So that is me kind of loudly and proudly proclaiming I am a proud gay Jew. And there are people, particularly in the LGBTQ plus community, who say no. That Star of David is a Zionist symbol, and you're not allowed to display that. And they are anti-Jewish, fundamentally, because they have imposed all of these classical anti-Jewish tropes onto the state of Israel, and they, they treat it as the collective Jew. So even though they pretend to only target Israel, it's not really about Israel, it's about Jews, the concept of Jews, but it's incredibly harmful. And at the Dyke March specifically, Jewish women, Jewish queer women were told you're not allowed to display rainbow flags with stars of David and David's in the middle. And that is appalling, especially because at these same marches, you're allowed to have Palestinian flags and you're allowed to have flags for other communities. So what is being said is very clear. It's as clear as day here. Um, and it is incredibly difficult. And the accusation of pinkwashing, which says Israel elevates its record in LGBTQ plus rights to diminish what it's doing to the Palestinians, is just an attack on nuance. Israel can be locked in a long-running conflict with the Palestinians, and it can be one of the best places in Asia to be a gay person. You know, I, yesterday was... Um, Tel Aviv, Tel Aviv's 112th birthday, and I said, this is the only city in the world where I feel fully comfortable to be a gay Jew. And that is true. A non-Jewish person who's never been to Israel, who's no understanding of Israel or Jewishness, is in absolutely no position to attack that concept. And it really is 
a very sad example of leftist anti-Jewish racism because ultimately those LGBTQ plus people who say Palestine is an LGBTQ plus issue, you say, okay, so go. Can you be out in the West Bank? Can you be out in Gaza? No, of course you can't. So not only are they attacking Jews, they're actually abandoning other LGBTQ plus people in those places. So it's a really harmful um, trend and it shows no sign of abetting. But I think what is kind of powerful is that some of the most powerful voices for Israel, for Jewish pride, are LGBTQ plus people, LGBTQ plus Jews. So we're showing, no, we're not going to disregard this aspect of our identity just because you're trying to force us to. We're going to be proud of being who we are in all aspects. You know, my oldest son is gay. And when you were writing about your coming out and all the angst that you were feeling, I, I think for him, he feels it slightly differently. He had very little angst in coming out. But I think in the broader international community, he has this angst about being Israeli. And it's just so disturbing that these two identities can't uh, coincide easily. Absolutely. And yes, there are people with, from within our Jewish community who also have a problem with it. But I have to say, they have caused me way less issues than the LGBTQ plus community who is anti-Jewish. It's so... Because as, as Jews, we develop our Jewish... As gay Jews, we develop our Jewish identity first. I was born into a Jewish family. I was raised as a Jew. I came out when I was 20. So I had 20 years of Jewishness ahead of, of identifying as a gay man. So we have to work hard. We have to work hard to be proud of being gay, even if we don't have the angst. The reality is we're not necessarily surrounded by role models community. We have to seek them out. We have to seek out representation. And it's a journey that most of us have to go on. So it's very troubling that we have those from within our own community who are trying to basically undo all of the very hard work that we as, in, as, in, as Jewish individuals have had to do to become also comfortable with our LGBTQ plusness. But it's... You know, it's just another example of we get it from all sides. We're getting it from everywhere. And Jewish pride is about standing up and saying, no, enough is enough. We're not going to tolerate this. And while we cannot control what you say and do about us, we're not going to accept it. We're not going to absorb it. We're going to be proud gay Jews, even if you try to make that not the case. I would imagine uh, not living in Israel, it takes a certain amount of courage to walk around, number one, with a kippah, with a yarmulke on your head. But to add to that a very overt symbol of uh, being gay, it, it takes a kind of double sense of courage to walk around like that. So, kol uh, kabod. <laughs> <laughs> Let's speak briefly about the people that you uh, highlighted in in the book. Not all of them. We'll pick out a couple. And one of them was Chen Mazik, who is also a, a very proud member of the gay community, gay Jewish community. And his tell us a little bit about him, you, in your words. So Chen is great. I've known Chen for a couple of years. And I met all of the interviewees online. And Chen is a very proud gay Israeli, and he's, um, his recent ancestors were Mizrahi. So I believe Tunisia and Iraq. And his family fled their respective countries um, after the foundations of the State of Israel in 1948. And his line is always, Israel saved my family's lives. And he's very passionate about the Mizrahi story. And unfortunately, because North America dominates the Jewish world and the majority of North American Jews are Ashkenazi, it seems that Ashkenazi has become kind of the default Jew in the diaspora. 
And that is something that Ren feels very keenly. But it's also not just a diasporic problem. It, we also saw there was inequality in Israel, and Ren provided me with statistics about the number of government ministers who were Mizrahi versus Ashkenazi. And I think that Ren's perspective on this is very interesting because Ren talks very openly about the pain that he was caused because he was not Ashkenazi. And he said, you know, I used to wish that I was Ashkenazi. And it kind of breaks my heart because he's such a proud Mizrahi activist. And that speaks particularly to me because both my brother-in-law, my sister-in-law are Mizrahi um, from actually the same places, respectively, where Khen's family are from. And my nieces and nephews are obviously mixed Ashkenazi and Mizrahi. So it's very important to me that my nieces and nephews understand all aspects of their Jewish identity. And Chen's work is really involved in highlighting the Mizrahi experience. So, for example, the Farhud, I didn't know about this. This was not something I was taught, but it's now something I include in my class on the Holocaust. And I think there are those who sometimes get nervous about talking about different experience takes away from your own, but actually I'm of the opposite opinion. It strengthens the idea of a global Jewish experience. The Holocaust was not just European, it happened in Europe, of course, but also the Middle East, in Iraq with the Farhud, Tunisia, North Africa, even in Asia with the Shanghai Ghetto. So we have to understand all Jewish experiences. And Ren has been really amazing in helping me kind of really just learn and understand and be an advocate for the Mizrahi community. And it was really important for me to include different Jewish voices. You know, I grew up in Glasgow. My recent ancestors were Ashkenazi. And while I never really identified as Ashkenazi, I was always Jewish. We did eat Ashkenazi food, right? I mean, it was not, it was part of the culture. We ate gefilte fish, which I like. I know that people hate on it, but I like. Um, we ate Ashkenazi food. So actually, learning about all of the different cuisines from the, around the Jewish world is so empowering and exciting and the different cultures. It's wonderful. And we have such rich, incredible cultures. You know, Betty Israel, Mizrahi, Sephardic, Romanoit. There's so many and there's even so many that I haven't even mentioned. And I do think it's important that we represent it. Um, because Jewish pride has to speak to every Jewish person. So if we don't represent their experiences, how can it speak to them? So uh, in that same vein, another of the people that you highlight is Shager Araro. I hope I didn't butcher her name, who is an immigrant from Ethiopia. And she discusses the still quite rampant uh, racism in Israel against Ethiopian Jews. And that was one thing that really made me happy that you included this, because again, this is a very pro-Israel book. It's very rah-rah, but not in an unrealistic sense. So her story is is very complicated and compelling, and I, I fully recommend that everyone read this. But another woman's story in the book, Amy Albertson, is even more complicated, I would say, in terms of fitting into the fabric of Israeli society. Who is she and why? So Amy is amazing. I love her. So Amy Albertson is from Sacramento in California. Her mother is Chinese-American and her father is Ashkenazi. So she is a Chinese-American patrilineal Jew. So her father is Jewish, her mother is not. And she grew up um, having a very limited understanding of her Jewish identity. But as she got older, she kind of came more to it. And she became an amazing advocate at her university. She became, I guess, the advocate, the voice for Israel on her campus. Because she, I guess, was not weighed down with the baggage that other members of our community had. And she was like, well, of course we're going to advocate for Israel. It makes no sense that people say the things they say about it. And then she made Aliyah. 
She's actually since moved back to California for the moment. But yeah, I mean, it was tricky for her moving to Israel. Firstly, because she's Asian. She is her, her outward appearance is, is, is of an Asian woman, which is not particularly common in Israel. She also then experiences anti-Asian racism. And also, especially during COVID, she was at the intersection between accusations against both of her communities that they were the ones causing the pandemic. But also being a patrilineal Jew, so having a Jewish father but not a Jewish mother, was also complicated because she was told, well, though you can make Aliyah, you won't be counted as Jewish. Um, there will be people in Israeli society who might want to date you, but they certainly won't want to marry you. And that was certainly very challenging for Amy. And I do think it's something that we as a people must very, um, it must be a priority that we work on. And nor, neither Amy nor myself are calling to disregard the halakha. Halakha is really important and it has been responsible for us being able to maintain our peoplehood. But we also have to understand, again, authentically, what does it mean to be a Jew? Who is included in the Jewish people? And actually, historically, those born to Jewish fathers and not Jewish mothers would still have been considered Jewish. And it changed at some point for, and there's various, you know, um, theories as to why it changed. But I do think now it's absolutely, Amy is Jewish. I know she's not halakhically Jewish, but she is a part of our peoplehood. And I think that we need to understand, we need to go back to the drawing board and go back to having conversations about what does this mean? And I don't claim to have all the answers, nor does Amy. And I say this like, this is a conversation that will continue because I'm not you know, arrogant to presume that here I have all the answers on how we deal with this very complicated issue. But it is one that we must continue discussing because what are we doing to people who are Jewish, who identify as Jewish, whose family are Jewish, but they just have inverted commas for the halakha, the wrong Jewish parent. So I think it's, uh, Amy is amazing, but yeah, her story is very complicated and it's, and it's a complication that she herself feels, which is in some ways very tragic. So just to close, I think that is one of the, the great messages of the book, actually. It's tragic that her story is so complicated, but one of the wonderful messages that you're getting across is that we are all works in progress. We should all be continuously questioning ourselves, questioning Israel, wrestling with everything that is problematic, and, and working, working together for a great solution to come up with the Jewish pride movement as you're pushing for it. So, Thank you so much for that. I really appreciate it. And I recommend everyone read Jewish Pride, Rebuilding a People. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to Times Will Tell and a special thanks to TLV1 Studios for sound production help. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to Times Will Tell on all podcast platforms. (laughs) 